It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is impossible to overstate how important rivers can be. Rivers provide life. We all know that. They are the flowing foundational essence behind the existence of pretty much every single civilization on Earth. Yet, once settlements have been established on the banks of a river, still the influence of a river grows beyond merely providing such things as drinking water and irrigation. On the European continent in ancient times, rivers were the arteries of intracultural connectivity. Rivers do so much. They carry boats, and boats carry goods. The exchange of materials and wealth across the continent happened because rivers allowed it to. Boats also need safe harbour, A river does not like you using it by night. So boats seek settlements, which in turn can charge the boats for providing safe harbour. Tolls and taxes help strengthen the towns that exist because of the river. Just as, if not more importantly, boats also carry humans, and humans possess not just material goods, but they carry ideas and knowledge. Boats on rivers were, up until the modern age, cultural growth facilitators. For centuries, they would bring people from port to port, where they would meet and exchange with others who had also been up and down the rivers. For millennia, inns and taverns played the role that Reddit does online today. Ideas, stories, and memes all passed from mouth to mind through multiple various regions, carried by people on boats on rivers. It is unlikely, but nonetheless tempting, to imagine someone scribbling funny drawings of cats that would then be copied and shared in taverns in towns along the rivers with glee. Finally, in finishing this episode's little prelude on the significance of rivers, Perhaps their most important quality is the opposite to the openness of movement that we just spoke about. Rivers also make natural borders. They can be used to stop things, mainly other people. In times when armies and tribes moved around, rivers could be great obstacles in getting from point A to point B. For modern Europeans today, compared to our ancestors, We have to spend significantly less time in our lives thinking about how to cross rivers. There is, in the mountains of Switzerland, a certain 
yet still truly unknown amount of trickles and flows that variously pull together and continue at different stages in their gravitational journey downwards, gradually assembling to eventually form the famous and ancient river that is called the Rhine. It flows all the way from the mountains, north, northwestward, through Western Europe, to its last emit into the North Sea. The whole way along, it performs all of the functions we spoke of before. Father Rhine, as it has commonly been called in various parts, is a life-giving source upon whose banks many different societies and cultures have come into being and grown to the age of being ancient. The Rhine boasts such well-known and influential cities as Basel, Strasbourg, Bonn, Cologne, and Utrecht. The reason they were put there? Because of the defensive nature of the Rhine. The Rhine was the border of Rome, and where it ends its journey and its influence is the same old corner of Europe which is the focus of this entire podcast. Our beloved swamp. The people who lived in the Rhine Delta were about to learn that even when not in Rome, you should still really just do as the Romans do. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. This is episode two. What have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace. Shut up. In the 50s BCE, the Roman Republic was the superpower around the Mediterranean, and was expanding northwards. As it had already for millennia, the Rhine coursed its way from the Swiss Alps down to the North Sea. We don't have written records from the people of these lands and beyond to know how they experienced life and what was coming next. It is likely that, as is the way of things, trade on the river had brought Roman and lowlander cultures into contact with each other years before Roman soldiers and their spears did. There is evidence in Friesland, on the North Sea coast, of pottery from places much further up the Rhine, most likely carried there by the river. In the Germanic territories before the Common Era and the period of Roman expansion, it was fairly common for people beyond the empire's borders to still trade cattle, forest products, and slaves for Roman wealth. With probably more cattle and slaves than forest products, it is fair to assume that the swamp people of the lowlands did much the same prior to Roman incursion. In 58 BCE, Julius Caesar commenced what would become eight years of fighting wars of conquest and enslavement in his attempt to acquire the resources of the land and people of Gaul. Like all names, the term Gaul is fraught with problems concerning exactly what it was. Generally, for Rome, Gaul was today's France, Belgium, parts of Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Germany. Generally a massive chunk of Western Europe. Caesar famously divided it into three parts. Belgica, Celtica, and Aquitania. 
the understanding of what Gaul was would change in the political and social imagination of Rome. Needless to say, though, that in Caesar's imagination, at least, the northern border of Gaul, now the northern border of Rome, was the River Rhine. Caesar identified many different tribes that made up Gaul, but also gave a term to an ethnographic demarcation of the Rhine, because he identified Germania on the other side of the river, but he spoke of Germans living in Gaul. These he called Germani Kisranani, literally meaning Germans on this side of the Rhine. Of these in the lowlands, he mentions the Eberones, the Menapi, and the Ambivariti. And if you like my ambivaricious, uh, ambivalent pronunciation, well, I'm from Australia. Get over it. It's how we say it there. Those people on the other side of the Rhine were called the Germani Transrenana. Literally, you guessed it, Germans on the other side of the Rhine. These include the Sicambri and the Ubi. He does make a brief mention of the Insula Batavorum, the island of the Batavi, who we mentioned in the first episode and also whose involvement with Rome we will go into much more later on in this episode. The thing is that Caesar was looking at his conquered territories from the view of a Roman general. He wanted to strategize and so wanted to categorize. During the Gallic conquests, He built alliances, made deals, broke deals, manipulated various peoples against each other, and went on wholesale ventures of sowing division and reaping genocidal elimination. Then he wrote about it to sell himself to a Roman audience that was also being fed a countering anti-Caesar narrative by other high-ranking Romans in the city. The Rhine was a natural border to Julius Caesar, but... There is no way that the variety of peoples living across all the regions that made up Gaul, Belgae, and Germania was so neatly divided in reality. That Germanic people lived on the Gallic side of the Rhine, for instance, shows that there would have been cross-culturation, breeding, and assimilation between the various peoples of different so-called tribes. But neither would all the people of these different tribes have been the same. People in hills developed different cultures to people on rivers or in forests or in swamps. Even though throughout this ancient period of the lowlands we refer to certain peoples and tribes, it is a simplification necessitated by the fact that we lack 99% of information about who they actually were and so use the labels given them by ancient writers. So, Although we refer to the Eberones or the Batavians or whomever, we have no idea either how the various clans of those groups would have differed from each other or exactly how they mixed and what identity traits they might have shared. So as we go on, please excuse us this unavoidable failing. So Caesar established the Rhine as Rome's northern border. Of its meandering course into the lowlands, he said simply that, quote, When it approaches the ocean, it divides into several branches, and having formed many and extensive islands, a great part of which are inhabited by savage and barbarous nations, of whom there are some who are supposed to live on fish and the eggs of seafowl. 
flows into the ocean by several mouths. End quote. So we don't know much from Caesar of the people living far into this delta, and nothing about those such as the Cananophates, the Frisians, the Sturii, the Chatic, Chamavi, the Tubantes, or all the other totally unknown tribes whose heritage at best is aught but a name plucked from the obscurity of history. We can get an idea of how some of the cultural attributes of these Germanic delta dwellers may have been, if we accept there were cultural commonalities between all the different peoples that Caesar called Germans. Differences would have existed, certainly based on geography. Our Germanic peoples in the lowlands lived in a swamp, which those upriver and into greater Gaul did not. But Caesar wrote this of the Germanic way of life, quote, Their whole life is occupied in hunting and in the pursuits of the military art. From childhood, they devote themselves to fatigue and hardships. Those who have remained chaste for the longest time receive the greatest commendation among their people. They think that by this the growth is promoted. By this the physical powers are increased and the sinews are strengthened. They do not pay much attention to agriculture, and a large portion of their food consists in milk, cheese, and flesh." Nor has any one a fixed quantity of land or his own individual limits, but the magistrates and the leading men each year apportion to the tribes and families, who have united together as much land as and in the place in which they think proper, and the year after compel them to remove elsewhere. End quote. He wrote that this egalitarian approach towards land use was to prevent division and conflict, and to keep the general population in contentment. Caesar, in his commentary on these people and his time of conquest, must be taken with a grain of salt. He was an extremely ambitious man, writing his own epic history with a view on his current and future political and social prospects in Rome, where his audience was and whose approval for future political office he was targeting, for when he eventually returned there. By all accounts, he was a highly intelligent man who looked at the bigger picture with much clarity. Caesar knew that what he wrote would be read far into the future, and contribute to the legacy that he was hoping to leave. He emphasized the valor and militancy of Germanic peoples, but this in turn was probably to highlight how bloody good he was in defeating them. He also had an interest in juxtaposing their barbarousness against the civility of the people of Rome. So there is that to keep in mind as well. Anyway, the Romans were now in the lowlands, and the Rhine would, as all great rivers do, carry their boats, soldiers, goods, gods, ideas, and memes to the people of the Delta for the following 400 or so years. Cities with catchy names such as Opia Novio Magus Batavorum and Triectum, modern-day Nijmegen and Utrecht respectively, were created as forts on the river, defending Roman territory from the boundless wilds of whatever lay beyond its northern bank. The Rhine now linked the lowlands to the continental hegemony of the Roman world. Almost immediately after Caesar's conquest, the Roman Republic fell into, yeah, an extremely boring malaise of civil war and strife from which it would never recover, and 
of which we will spare you the details. It emerged later as an empire, in all but name, ruled by Caesar's heir, Octavian, the Emperor Augustus. By 12 CE, Augustus had decided that the Roman borders must expand beyond the Rhine, as far north as the River Elbe. To these means, a military commander called Nero Claudius Drusus was sent to convince whomever was living in these parts to submit to Rome. Rome's style wasn't to just go and snatch land or to ask nicely, but rather to build a vassal system whereby they would ensure the continued integrity of their vassals in return for payments in resources or taxes. It was basically a mafia-style state. Tribes that assented to this were well aware of the power of Rome and what befell those who resisted that power. Furthermore, even though in the Germanic territories the social and political system was not traditionally centralised as it had become in Rome, there were still systems of alliances to be both adhered to and broken according to interests. Gaining the alliance of Rome would strengthen one tribe's position in any conflicts with other tribes. When Drusus was sent by Augustus to expand Rome's borders, various Germanic tribes were going to have to make the choice between submission and defiance. Cassius Dio tells us about it and how one ancient tribe, the Sugumbri, decided to defy. And so Drusus, as Dio puts it, quote, devastated much country, end quote. He then goes on to tell us about another group, a people whom we spoke about in the first episode, known as the Frisia. He says that Drusus, quote, sailed down the Rhine to the ocean, won over the Frisians, and crossing the lake, invaded the country of the Chauci, where he ran into danger, as his ships were left high and dry by the ebb of the ocean. He was saved on this occasion by the Frisians, who had joined the expedition with their infantry, end quote. The Frisians, when faced with the decision of how to respond to Roman hegemony, made the choice to comply. We learn what deal Drusus struck with them from Tacitus. Quote, Drusus had imposed on them a moderate tribute, suitable to their limited resources, the furnishing of ox hides for military purposes. End quote. I just wanted to make sure that Tacitus sounded different from Dio. In 29 CE, the cowhide tax had been reassessed, and under the enforcement of a Roman official named Olenius, the Frisians began to feel the pinch of Roman exploitation. Tacitus tells us that their response was to, quote, cast off peace more because of our rapacity than from their impatience of subjection, end quote. He explains that Olenius, a first-ranked centurion appointed to govern the Frisians, did not fairly determine the quota of cowhide they were supposed to supply to Rome. He used the hide of wild and much larger bulls as the standard, which was intolerable to the proud cow farmers whose domestic cows were much smaller than the wild ones. But the exploitation did not stop there. Quote, First it was their herds, next their lands, last the persons of their wives and children, which they gave up to bondage. Then came angry remonstrances, and when they received no relief, they sought a remedy in war. The soldiers appointed to collect the tribute were seized and gibbeted. Alenius anticipated their fury by flight and found refuge in a fortress named Flevum, 
where a by no means contemptible force of Romans and allies kept guard over the shores of the ocean. End quote. Gibbeted, by the way, in that is the practice of hanging up criminals to display to other potential criminals. A disgusting thing, but not as disgusting as how many Tacitus quotes I've just realized there are still to go. Oh well, carry on. The Frisians went about expelling all Roman officials from their territories, fought off the Roman army sent to punish them in a battle called the Battle of Betahenna Wood, possibly killing over a thousand Roman soldiers in the process, and gained their liberty from Rome for the following near 20 years. Only in 49 CE did a Roman governor named Corbulo manage to make a big enough impression on the Frisians by rampaging through the lowlands wielding his big Roman sword that they again agreed to submit, suffering the punishment of having to provide hostages to Rome, be resettled, and have a Roman senatorial government imposed upon them to be run by Roman officials. Just a quick note. We understand the big Roman sword is a bit incorrect, since the typical gladius used by Romans was still fairly small. So, we can say, wielding his small pointy Roman sword, if it makes you feel better, but that being said, it was in this century that Roman cavalry started adopting the longer swords, more widely used by the Celts who had been absorbed into Roman legions. The cultural exchange highway between the Roman world and the worlds of those they conquered was certainly a dual road. Romans are often seen as having been great inventors, whereas more correctly, they were really, really good at copying, adopting, and adapting technology from wherever they roamed, and from whomever they roamed over. Anyway, it might seem that with the Frisians once again being forced to submit to Rome, that this might seem like the beginning of what would become full-blown Romanization. However, a surprise move by the Emperor Claudius commanded Corbulo, to withdraw his garrisons to be once more on the south bank of the Rhine, effectively removing the administration of Frisian affairs from the hands of the Romans. The Frisians and other people living north of the Rhine, in the lowlands, were now largely independent to continue living in, terraforming, and farming their happy little swamp. Speaking of being independent, that's what we are at Republic of Amsterdam Radio which means we're going to take a quick ad break to help keep this microphone on. Be back soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, 
and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In 58 CE, there was a fair bit of inactivity in Western Europe as regarded the Roman military. So two Frisians called Veritas and Malarix tried a cheeky maneuver to occupy the fairly vacant of Romans Rhineland. Why not? They were clearly being naughty in doing this, and Rome soon told them so. So Veritas and Malarix went to Rome to try and argue the case that they should be allowed to remain. Tacitus recounts how, when they were awaiting their chance to speak, they observed how amongst the senators there were fancy-clothed foreign delegates. When they learned that these were men whose people had shown particular courage or loyalty to Rome, they took umbrage that they were not also amongst them. Quote, Tacitus again, quote, Crying out that no race on earth was braver or more loyal than the Germans, they moved down and sat amongst the senators. The spectators liked this fine, impulsive, old-fashioned pride of race, and Nero made them both Roman citizens. All the same, he ordered the Frisians to evacuate the land. End quote. Oh well, it was worth them giving it a try. Other tribes in the lowlands at the time, such as the Cananophates and the Batavians, also had to deal with the might of Rome. Caesar, when he was busy veni vidi vitching all the Gallic and Germanic tribes who stood before him, had made a brief mention in the Bello Gallico of the island of the Batavi, but he didn't go into any detail about the people who lived there. It is from Tacitus that we learn more about the Batavians. By the time he wrote of them, they had grown to become important cogs in the machinery of this end of the empire. Really regretting giving Tacitus an accent. Quote, The Batavians are the bravest race of all the Rhine country. They occupy an island in the river and a small strip along its banks. Once, they were a branch of the Chatti, but in consequence of a domestic quarrel, they removed to their present position to become a part of the Roman Empire. They enjoyed that honour still, and likewise a special privilege that marks their old alliance with us. No tribute brands them as inferiors. No tax farmer spoils their substance, excused from all tax or contribution, they form a reserve of brave men to be employed only on the field of battle, like a magazine of arms, kept in store for use in war. End quote. Not much is said by the Romans about the Cananophates, other than the fact that along with living on the same island as the Batavi, they also seem to share much the same origin, language, and courageous character as them, though they were inferior in numbers. Apparently, the name Cananophates used to be translated as rabbit catchers. Didn't see that one coming. But nowadays, people seem to think it really means leek masters, as in leek the vegetable. Yep, we'll just happily imagine them as being first century, battle-worn, Germanic, vegetarian leek farmers. The Batavians, who, as Tacitus mentioned, are believed to have been an offshoot of the larger Chatty tribe, who just never shut up, had come down the River Rhine around 500 BCE and settled in this area known as the Beethova. By the time they were made vassals of Rome, they were renowned as excellent horse handlers, soldiers, and swimmers. Such was their use on the battlefield. 
that they were given this extraordinary exemption to the usual taxes levied on vassal states and peoples by Rome. Instead, all they had to provide were soldiers. The swamplands of the Beethoven could not sustain a huge population, but their sole commodity for Rome's use was their people. It has been suggested that the Batavians provided more of their people to the Roman army per capita than probably any other tribe. At a young age, their boys were taken away and put into service. The elite fighters of the Batavians became so admired that in 30 CE, a personal bodyguard for the emperor was formed called the Numerus Batavorum. The purpose for this is thought to be that by recruiting a loyal unit of fighters from the fringes of the empire, they would be disconnected and so inured to the stab in the back false alliance culture that lubricated politics in the center of power. Until 68 CE, Batavians made up most of this bodyguard. However, it also included Frisians and other people from around the Rhine Delta region. This ended in 68 CE because the Romans decided to embark upon something that would become known as the Year of the Four Emperors. Nero was overthrown and committed assisted suicide, and the governor of one of the Spanish provinces, a man called Galba, was thrust into power. He disbanded the numerous Batavorum, inflicting shame and embarrassment on the Batavian people. In the year that followed, Galba would be overthrown by Otho, who would compete and lose to Vitellius, who would then follow the same course and cede power to Vespasian. He would then reign for 10 years, and from him, the Flavian dynasty would arise and remain in control for 27 years in total. During the chaos of this civil conflict, the Batavians went into revolt against Rome. For years, they had already been feeling maltreated by the demands of the empire, and the conditions of this would get bad enough to inspire them to go directly against the might of the biggest power on earth. Under Emperor Vitellius, the recruitment of Batavian boys and men into the armed forces had intensified. Again to Tacitus we must turn. Here we go. Quote, Batavians of military age were being conscripted on the instructions of Vitellius. The levy was by its nature a heavy burden, but it was rendered still more oppressive by the greed and profligacy of the recruiting sergeants, who called up the old and unfit in order to exact a bribe for their release, while young, good-looking lads, for children are normally quite tall among the Batavians, were dragged off to gratify their lust. This caused bitter resentment, and the ringleaders of revolt got together and succeeded in inducing their countrymen to refuse service. End quote. So, as well as disproportionately recruiting their population into the army, Roman officers were holding hostage and ransoming the elderly and young alike, as well as kidnapping and raping Batavian boys. So the conditions were ripe for an angry people to go into revolt, and when a leader emerged for them to follow, this revolt eventuated. This leader was one Gaius Julius Civilis, who claimed to be the descendant of Batavian kings. Tacitus tells us that, quote, by far the most prominent of the Batavians were Julius Civilis and Claudius Paulus, who were of royal descent. Fonteius Capito executed Paulus on a trumped-up charge of rebellion, while Civilis was put in irons and sent to Nero. 
Although acquitted by Galba, he found himself once more in danger under Vitellius, whose army clamoured for his head. This was why he hated Rome, and hoped for great things from our difficulties. But Civilis was unusually intelligent for a native. Open rebellion involved the risk of being attacked as an enemy of Rome, so he posed as a friend and supporter of Vespasian." End quote. The details are, through the lens of 2,000 years and a few sources, as well as an ever-weirder accent, really foggy on why Civilis and his brother Claudius Paulus were arrested back when Nero was still emperor. Tacitus also fairly glosses over the execution of Civilis's brother. He does, however, put it straight out there that his cause of rebellion is revenge and self-preservation. Civilis's family had supposedly been kings of his people prior to Roman domination, apparently. So, the temptation for conclusion is that this was a rebellion fed by a latent desire for self-determination, an unhappy population being exploited for military service, and an angry prince looking for revenge and redemption. When he was back in the lowlands, Civilis, quote, called the leaders of his tribe and the boldest of the common people into a sacred grove under the pretext of giving a banquet, and when he saw that the night and revelry had fired their spirits, he began to speak of the honour and glory of their tribe, then passed on to count over their wrongs, the extortion practiced on them, and all the rest of the misfortunes of slavery. For, he declared, we are no longer regarded as allies, as once we were, but as slaves. End quote. His fellow Batavians rallied behind him following the banquet and bound themselves to each other and to their cause with an oath. Then, the Batavians rose up against the Romans. There was initial success. Civilis also gained the alliance of the other tribes of the lowlands, such as the Cananophates and the Frisians. Civilis's timing in revolt was perfect as far as exploiting the chaos of the Roman establishment at the time. Vitellius was renowned for his gluttony, actually, and besides being far too consumed with the approaching Vespasian to put much thought into the Batavian revolt, he was also consumed with generally just consuming. A Roman officer called Flaccus was calling the shots in the Rhine region on behalf of Vitellius. I really love saying the name Flaccus. Flaccus. The Frisians and the Cananophates attacked Roman forces by surprise. It led to several pitched battles and a naval one. Onslaughts ensued. Which brings us to today's Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. That's right, our word in English for a fearsome attack, onslaught, derives from Old Middle Dutch, the word anslag. An meaning on, and slag meaning to hit or strike. Boom! There's an onslaught of extreme etymological edification, because we bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Following this onslaught, the rebels had quick success, with many of the Roman soldiers actually also being lowlanders or Germanic peoples not so far removed from the rebels themselves. They deserted to the Batavian side. Of the naval battle, Tacitus says, quote, 
The naval force was equally disloyal. Some of the rowers were Batavians, and they feigned incompetence in order to hinder the sailors and marines in the performance of their duties. Then they began to resist, and tried to steer the ships towards the enemy-held bank, finally murdering the helmsmen and centurions who refused to throw in their lot with them. In the end, the whole fleet of 24 ships either deserted or was captured. End quote. For Rome, still consumed by civil war with the approach of Vespasian, this revolt and ensuing losses were the last thing it needed. For the Batavians, however, life was going great. Quote, This success earned the rebels immediate prestige and provided a useful basis for future action. They had obtained the arms and ships they needed and were acclaimed as liberators as the news spread like wildfire throughout the German and Gallic provinces. End quote. Civilis made various entreaties to the people of these provinces, enticing many of them to join what was, terrifyingly for a Rome already engaged in a civil war, becoming a general Germanic revolt. A tribe of people known as the Tungrians, who inhabited what is today in the east of Belgium, around a town still carrying their name, by the way, Tongeren, also deserted the Romans and joined Civilis and the Lowlanders. This was bad for the commanding officer, Flaccus, because it meant that the establishment could no longer trust auxiliary troops from anywhere in the region. Up until now, the Romans had been using just auxiliary forces. It is here that Flaccus decided to send in two Roman legions, the 5th and the 15th, or as they're known in Roman, the V and the XV, bearing their imperial standards. Civilis employed what has become known as a fairly widely used tactic amongst the barbarians that Rome often fought. Tacitus tells us that Civilis, quote, caused his mothers and sisters, accompanied by the wives and young children of all his men, to take up their station in the rear as a spur to victory or a reproach to the routed. Then the battle chant of the warriors and the shrill wailing of the women rang out over the host, evoking in response only a feeble cheer from the legions and auxiliary units. The Roman left front was soon exposed by the defection of the Batavian cavalry regiment, which immediately turned about to face us. But in this frightening situation, the legionaries kept their arms and ranks intact. The Ubian and Treveran auxiliaries disgraced themselves by stampeding over the countryside in wild flight. End quote. Is that the end of Tacitus? Oh, I think he turned from like a posh English academic into a, um, an old sea dog. Civilis, through savvy entreaty, gained the support of Vespasian, who would soon win this civil war going on against Vitellius. The Batavians, therefore, were really sitting pretty. They had defeated an army of some 6,500 men, expelled Roman forces from their lands, enticed their neighbours into pursuing autonomy of their own, and secured the support of the man who would soon become emperor. Civilis was as good as king, but it wasn't enough. In a story sense, it seems like he had just had to bite off more than he could chew. He laid siege to a town called Xanton, a major Roman outpost on the Rhine itself and a base of two Roman legions. This was absolutely an affront to the dignitas of Rome in general, and one that could not go unpunished by whomever was in control and despite whatever alliances had been made. 
but the civil war was still raging. Any and every bloke who felt fit to call himself emperor still would not be able to afford caring much about the Batavians laying siege to Xanten. However, during the siege, Vespasian won the civil war. Erroneously, it seems, Civilis allowed the siege to continue, perhaps a little smitten with himself and by his success up until now. Vespasian now had no choice. Despite their alliance, he had to come down heavily on the Batavians, which he could now do, given that he no longer had to commit resources to, well, the civil war. In the end, the Batavians and the fellow lowlanders were incorporated back into the Roman mafia fold, with much the same conditions as prior to the revolt. It is unclear whether, had they not laid siege to Xanten, Vespasian would have granted them the conditions which they trusted that he would. A bridge was built over a river called the Nabalia, this being the only recording of that name in history, and peace negotiations were held. Although Tacitus mentions that the Roman captain made a speech, it all finishes there. We have no idea what exactly was said, and we have no idea what exactly happened to Civilis. As far as storytelling goes, it sucks. But there you have it. That's Tacitus. Over the next few centuries, the centralized structure of Rome would sustain its meteoric rise and immense growth, but also eventually contribute to its decay. Germanic tribes around the Rhine would continue to live, love, create, fight, and die in their own regions, but the extent to which they adhered to Rome was dependent on the situation and their relationship with Rome at the time. Who was in power, both in Rome and amongst the various Germanic tribes, what their interests and agendas were, as well as the political viability of issues in the provinces for Roman senators, meant that lowlander Germanic people were under varying degrees of subjugation, but also varying levels of autonomy. They too were exposed to all the frailties and strengths of their own cultures and structures, hierarchy, alliance, trade, war, marriage, resources. Also, the migration that for thousands of years had always come from the north and the east had never abated. As Europe came to know itself from corner to corner, largely through the growth of Rome, people were pushed, often by necessity, to seek greener pastures. This would have had major effects, such as the introduction of a greater variety of genes, memes, and historical scenes. Also, these groups of Germanic migrants who moved southwestward from former outer Germania towards Gaul were clans of big, fighting people, and gradually, Rome's grip around the Rhine was loosened. This is seen to have started already in the 1st century CE. The Rhine Delta and beyond was simply too much on the fringes, and not a valuable enough place in terms of resources for the people at the centre of Rome's power system to pay it that much heed. Those people always had enough going on elsewhere to distract them. Whenever Rome convulsed, it provided an opportunity for those on its fringes to seek greater independence and power. An intensified version of this happened in the 260s CE. In these years, economic depression, invasion, civil war, and plague all combined to lay the groundwork in the empire for what would become known as the crisis of the 3rd century. In 260 CE, in the German provinces, 
a Roman commander called Marcus Cassianius Latinius Posthumus, thought to have been of Batavian origin, had led his men to victory against a retreating army of Uthingi, who were another Germanic tribe whose name I've definitely mispronounced. The Uthingi were carrying spoils of war that they brought from Italy, which they'd gone and raided, and this booty was captured by Posthumus and his forces. Posthumus distributed the wealth liberally amongst his own soldiers. When he was then ordered that it must actually all be given over to Rome, he relayed the order to his men in a way that invited them to give their loyalty to him rather than the state. And this they did. He led them to the major fortification along the Rhine, the Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinentium, today just called Cologne, and laid siege to it. Around this time, news reached the provinces that the Roman Emperor Valerius had been defeated and captured in the east of the empire. This was all enough for the Germanic legions to then thrust Posthumus into the position of emperor. Rome was now split, the Gallic Empire was formed, and this region would not be reincorporated back into the general empire until Aurelian, 14 years later. So these multifarious tribes were beginning to emerge as more centralized and larger groups within their regions, or at least that's how history makes it seem. Not just confederations, but combined identities would emerge that would eventually come to encompass all the various peoples of the lowlands, whose ancestors were all these different tribal people, some of whom we've had a chance to look at in this episode. There are other mentions of Batavians, as well as their military exploits later in history as well. They didn't just end with the end of their revolt. Constantius II, the emperor in 355 for instance, as well as another emperor, Constantius Gallus, mentioned using them still in their legions. A town called Passau, on the border of Bavaria and Austria, is named after the Batavians as well, which is more a legacy than many ancient and now unknown tribes can lay claim to. The Frisian name would also continue until this very day, but the people bearing that name would undergo all kinds of significant changes that would result from the gradual but inevitable collapse of Rome. As the Western Roman Empire truly began to die in the 400s, the direct consequences of its institutions, trade, culture and taxes over the lowlands, Gaul, Belgae and Germania disappeared. As we take our story into the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries, the void left by Rome's collapse will be filled by so many different people and groups, some will remain forever unknown, whilst the exploits of others will form the basis for the rest of the history to come. The so-called Dark Ages have arrived in the Lowlands, and we are going to try to shine a light on them in the next episode of the History of the Netherlands. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.